You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com All right, friends, welcome to the Corbett Report Radio here on the Republic Broadcasting Network. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you from the palatial home recording studios of the Corbett Report here in the sunny climes of Western Japan. On this Friday night edition of the broadcast, here we are live on this Friday night, all ready to go with our good friend Sibel Edmonds of BoilingFrogsPost.com. But unfortunately, uh, although I've been hyping it all week, she's not going to be appearing tonight. Unfortunately, as some of you uh, who have been following Boiling Frog's posts might know, uh, Sibel has been in the process of moving across the country from the Den of Vipers, as I call it, there in Washington, D.C. She's now out in Oregon, where she's uh, setting up a new home and making a new life. But at this moment, she doesn't have everything quite set up in terms of the webcam and Skype and all of that. So unfortunately, we're postponing tonight's uh, conversation with Sibel Edmonds until next Tuesday night. So for all of you tuning in for that conversation, let me apologize for uh, for that. But she will be here next Tuesday night. And in fact, we have a whole uh, slew of guests next week that will uh, make for some interesting programming. And perhaps I'll just go through the uh, the guest list for next week in anticipation of what's to come. On Monday night, we're going to be talking to Joshua Owens, who some of you might remember is the, the creative force behind Humanity is Rising, that excellent new truth song that uh, that just came out recently in which we highlighted here on the broadcast in the past we're going to be talking to Joshua about his work um, writing uh, songs, but also his work exposing truth on a number of levels. So that should be uh, particularly interesting, I think. Tuesday night, we're going to be talking to Sibel Edmonds, of course, BoilingFrogsPost.com. Wednesday night, we're going to be talking to uh, Faradinkum Radio and uh, the host of that, who I have talked to on the Corbett Report at CorbettReport.com. But we're going to be talking to him uh, here on the program uh, on the radio broadcast for the first time, and people can look into Fair Income Radio for, for more about that and what's going on there, but uh, basically truth and uh, news broadcasting from Australia, and uh, he's starting his own radio program, etc., so should be an interesting conversation. And then on Thursday night, we're going to be talking to our old friend Dan Dix of Press for Truth uh, at pressfortruth.tv. He's got a forthcoming documentary on the Bilderberg Group and uh, his attendance there at Bilderberg 2012 this year. So that is, uh, I'm very much looking forward to that. Of course, always a big fan of Dan Dick's work. And if you haven't checked out some of his previous documentaries like United We Fall or uh, Into the Fire, uh, just some incredible work, some of the best uh, documentaries coming out there from uh, an independent and alternative perspective. But speaking of news and information from an independent and alternative perspective, this is Boiling Frogs Post Week on the broadcast, and even though, unfortunately, we don't have Sibel Edmonds with us tonight, we're still going to talk about uh, Boiling Frogs Post-related matters. As I've mentioned a few times now here this week on the program, Boiling Frogs not only a great place for podcasts like the uh, the Boiling Frogs Post podcast, which just released an interview with Pepe Escobar today, so I suggest you go and check that out, and The Reality Principle with Eric Dreitzer and Empire, Power, and People, 
people with uh, Andrew Gavin Marshall and the eye opener with yours truly, but also a place where there's uh, a nightly news and editorial roundup that I think is more in-depth and more interesting. You'll see more interesting stories in this than you will, I think, in any other single source. And just to prove that, tonight on the program, we're going to go over uh, some of the, the nightly news and editorials from from uh, the October 25th, last night. And we're also going to go over some of the articles that are there on the website. And I'm also going to uh, to read a little bit from uh, Sibel Edmonds' memoir, Classified Woman, here on air to give you uh, just a taste and to set up our conversation for next week. Because, again, her story is so remarkable that it has to be heard to be believed or it has to be read to be believed, I suppose. But we will go over and we'll read some of that uh, for you tonight so that you can get a taste of what's in there. And I really, once again, could not recommend strongly enough that people get their hands on an actual copy of Classified Woman. And we'll be talking about how you can do that and what's uh, contained therein tonight on the broadcast. But since uh, we don't have a guest, uh, we have wide open phone lines. Absolutely any topic that you'd like to to come in with and talk about tonight, I will leave the phone lines wide open. 1-800-313-9443. Once again, 1-800-313-9443. Love to hear your questions and comments. Uh, So let's take a short breather. We'll take our first break here, but when we come back, we'll continue going over the uh, incredible wealth of information at BoilingFrogsPost.com. Okay, friends, welcome back to the program. Once again, this is Corbett Report Radio on Republic Broadcasting. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and once again, if you're just tuning in, Unfortunately, I've been promising Sibel Edmonds for you all week, and unfortunately, it's not going to happen tonight. Once again, she's still getting things set up in terms of uh, her big move, which she just made from one side of the country to the other. So instead, we have postponed until next Tuesday night, and on Tuesday night, we will be talking to Sibel Edmonds about Boiling Frog's Post and her work there her time in the FBI, all of that uh, important stuff, and of course your your calls and questions as well. So I hope you will tune in for that. But uh, tonight, in Sibel's ad- absence, we will continue going over BoilingFrogsPost.com and the wealth of information that's available there. It is just an absolutely incredible resource, once again, for anyone who isn't checking it out. And just to prove that, let's go over just uh, one of the nightly news and editorial roundups that uh, happens every single night there at BoilingFrogsPost.com, or every weeknight at any rate. And again, this is uh, just an, a curated selection of links uh, and news stories from around the globe that uh, you really won't see this type of roundup anywhere else. It really does get into a lot of uh, detail. So there are uh, about two or three dozen different, uh, actually probably three or four dozen uh, news stories that are linked up here as well as several videos. But let's uh, let's actually go through some of these stories and we'll just highlight a few of them that I think aren't probably going to get any attention from either the mainstream press or even a lot of the alternative press. So let's go through some of these. So, for example, one of these links from this uh, Boiling Frogs Post nightly news and editorial roundup, Iran rejects UN criticism of its cybersecurity rules. Iran rejected criticism from a UN human rights investigator over its tighter cybersecurity rules, saying they are necessary to protect it against cyber attacks and have nothing whatsoever to do with freedom of expression. In his latest report, UN Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights Situation in Iran, Ahmad Shahid, said he was concerned about reports of government activities that seemingly infringe on freedom of expression and the right to information. He said authorities have reportedly targeted websites they see as promoting terrorism, espionage, and economic or social crimes. 
These include sites that contain pornographic content, insult Islam or government officials, proselytize unrecognized religions, or establish anti-government political groups, Shahid said. In response to his report presented to a UN General Assembly delegation this week and sent to Reuters on Thursday by Iran's UN mission, Tehran said its cyber policies were unrelated to human rights. All right, uh, an interesting story for a number of different reasons. First of all, because, again, the hypocrisy of many of these governments uh, threatening Iran because of its use, uh, its crackdown on the Internet, when, of course, they do the same thing in many other countries. And we do have a free and open web for the time being, but uh, when we see things that are happening all around the, the cyberspace and all of the proposals that are coming along to make sure that the uh, U.S. government will be able to do what it wants in cyberspace with... SOPA and PIPA and all of their latest variants, uh, I think it is absolute hypocrisy, but no surprise there. But it's probably quite true. I mean, the Iranian government are no angels, and they they are uh, undoubtedly, I'm sure, cracking down on the internet in ways that are uh, draconian and should be uh, avoided, because, of course, the internet is humanity's last greatest chance for free expression and uh, an actual dialogue amongst all people on the planet. How amazing would that be? But it uh, the other level of hypocrisy here is that this is being presented by the UN General Assembly, which has been hearing for the last month or two now about how the Internet is just too open. And as an open resource, it presents the perfect tool for terrorists. So we must clamp down on it. So the very same UN General Assembly that is coming to the conclusion that there is too much freedom of expression online and that we have to clamp down on the name of uh, fighting the war on terror is also simultaneously arguing that Iran clamping down on its internet is being uh, draconian and should therefore uh, suffer the slings and arrows of the UN General Assembly. It's just a bizarre situation all around. But again, lots going on in that article. Uh, let's move on to another piece of Iranian news. There's about six or seven, five or six stories here in this uh, Iranian section of the nightly news and editorial roundup there at Boiling Frog's Post for October 25th. One of the other ones that I think catches my eye, Iran seeks greater trade with Egypt as sanctions bite. And again, we were talking about this with Eric Dreitzer last night on the program. So if you didn't catch that, I hope you'll go back and listen to that conversation where we talk about this and the fact that Iran and Egypt have, uh, well, closer relations than they've had in quite a long time. It's not necessarily a huge uh, 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 close uh, relationship yet, but it's becoming closer at any rate. So reading from this article from almonitor.com, Iranian Minister of Commerce and Industry and Minerals Mehdi Ghazanafri invited his Egyptian counterpart to visit Tehran at the earliest opportunity to study boosting trade between the two countries. He pointed out that Egypt and Iran are already cooperating in the auto sector. Ghazanfari told al-Mazri al-Yum that his country is ready to expand trade with Cairo. He called on the Egyptian government to resolve the visa problem for Iranian businessmen and tourists that is impeding the flow of investments. The Iranian minister called on businessmen in both countries not to wait for politicians to make decisions on economic and trade cooperation, stressing that there are no obstacles in that regard, especially since Egypt has funds abroad that should be used for joint projects. So again, as we were talking about yesterday, it seems like it, Iran and Egypt are drifting closer as uh, as obviously the, the old regime has been toppled and now the, the Muslim Brotherhood's in charge. I'm sure they're at least more willing to uh, broach the topic of talking to the Iranians and and we probably will see a closer relationship growing out of that uh, those moves in Egypt. 
So, uh, very interesting, and it goes to show that things are very much in a state of flux, and it does help us to have these types of stories at hand so that we can actually figure out what is going on and hopefully come to some better decisions about uh, what's happening in our world and what we can do about it. Um, some more d- stories that are coming out from the Central Asia region from uh, Boiling Frog's Post's last news and editorial roundup. We have this uh, unfortunate story from uh, DWD.de, uh, Deutsche Welt. Human trafficking, prostitution thrive in Afghanistan. Well, probably no surprise there, but let's document it anyway. Thousands of Afghan girls and boys are trafficked into neighboring countries and sold into slavery each year. Though it is taboo, prostitution is alive and thriving at the cost of those forced to work in it. It's the oldest trade in the world and exists in probably every country in the world, yet prostitution is not a dream job. Most female sex workers are forced to make a living through prostitution. In conservative Afghanistan, prostitution is illegal, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Human trafficking is booming. Young, Young women are being sold and sent over to neighboring countries, mostly to Pakistan. And again, you can go through that report documenting some of the, uh, the, the just this unspeakable things that are happening to the Afghani women and, uh, and even children now being forced into human trafficking, into prostitution. And, uh, I don't think we can blame the entire phenomenon and everything that's, that stems from it from the illegal invasion and occupation of Afghanistan. But at the very least, the idea that this was all about increasing women's rights and, and giving them so much better, uh, chance at, at life is exposed as having been the fraud that it always was. Of course, uh, what happened in Afghanistan was never about promoting women's rights or anything, any of the types of touchy-feely, warm, fuzzy topics that they like to promote in the uh, bottom-controlled corporate media. Uh, it, it was never about that. It was always about securing the gun, the, the drugs, the, the poppy fields, and the minerals that they're now finding there, the uh, the mil- minerals that are supposedly worth up to a, a trillion dollars uh, in, in total. Uh, it's always been about the the economics of it and the uh, the geo strategy of it. It has nothing to do with actually protecting the Afghani's themselves, as indicated by very sickening stories like that. And speaking of invasions that were committed for pretenses uh, that were absolutely not true, let's turn to another place where things are all falling apart after the invasion has happened, but no one seems to care anymore. 600 killed in Bani Walid fighting in one day, say sources. This comes from RT talking about the, uh, the, the city of Bani Walid in Libya that has been under armed siege for a number of weeks now. And, uh, we've been talking to Eric Dreitzer, for example, last night on the program about this. RT has this latest report. Amid conflicting reports that the Libyan city of Bani Walid was captured by army forces, RT has learned that 600 people were allegedly killed in Wednesday's fighting, and over 1,000 have been hospitalized. Locals are appealing for international aid. Libyan officials claim that government forces conducted a 20-day siege before capturing Bani Walid, the last stronghold for supporters of the Gaddafi regime, and seized the city. Sources in the town gave conflicting reports saying that local militias were responsible for the siege and now control and now in control of the area. Again, this is an incredibly important story that we're not hearing anything about because it goes against the the entire narrative that we heard that uh, basically the entire Libyan population was was behind uh, the the rebel forces that took over last year and uh, the ousting of Gaddafi. To this day, a year later, there are still Gaddafi strongholds in Libya that are still actively resisting the so-called government in Tripoli, which is a government 
in name only, basically, that is unable to exert its authority and is functioning as a hired gun militia police state, basically, and uh, doing things like this, where uh, 1,600 people have been killed and or injured in the fighting for this city in the last couple of weeks. And what have we heard about this in most of the mainstream media? Exactly nothing. Exactly zero. So again, Libya is absolutely still a war-torn, war-ravaged nation. And the various pieces that it has been splintered into are being scattered around. And, uh, and no one's even bothering to pay attention or count the pieces as they fall to the floor because... Hey, well, we broke it, but we ain't going to fix it. We're just going to leave it there to rot on the vine, as it were, because the work is done and Gaddafi's been ousted. So once again, these are the types of stories they do not want you concentrating on, but that's exactly why we must concentrate on them and shine the light on what happens when these illegal invasions and occupations take place and what inevitably happens as the country continues to devolve. But on that note, let's take another short break. When we come back, we'll continue going through some of tonight's nightly news and editorial roundup. I'm sorry, last night's nightly news and editorial roundup from Boiling Frog's Post. And later on in tonight's program, I'll be reading uh, a section from Sibel Edmonds' memoir, Classified Woman. So I hope you'll stay tuned right there. We'll be right back. All right, friends, welcome back to the broadcast. Once again, you are tuned into Corporate Report Radio on this Friday night edition of the broadcast. And uh, once again, if you're just joining us, unfortunately, Sibella Edmonds is not here tonight. She will be here next Tuesday night. So I'm looking forward to that. And in preparation, we're continuing our Boiling Frogs Post week here on the program by going over last night's nightly news and editorial roundup. Tonight's uh, nightly news will probably be being posted in the next couple of hours, so keep your eye on BoilingFrogsPost.com for that. But let's continue going over some of these stories from yesterday that uh, that most people probably didn't hear about. And one of them that I think is extremely important is related to a certain place that we were talking about on the program last week when it came to the Ignoble War Prize, and that is Fallujah, which of course has been, uh, well, it's at least a city in Iraq that most people will be familiar with, if only because of the the sieges that took place there during the American occupation. And of course, we now know that that included the use of white phosphorus and other, uh, well, presumably war crime in uh, worthy chemicals that have started a wave of birth defects in Fallujah. We were covering that uh, last week on the program, but uh, just some of the latest, because... Who else is covering news of what's going on in Fallujah and other places, but places like Boiling Frog's Post? Uh, partial curfew imposed on Fallujah. And it says, uh, police in Anbar province imposed partial curfew on, curfew on Fallujah district as from Wednesday, October 24th, until further notice in response to a car bomb explosion in the downtown. Police sources told NINA, that's the National Iraqi News Agency, that police force, source, forces surrounded some neighborhoods in the town's central and southern parts, especially the Risala neighborhood, and launched search raids in pursuit of suspe- suspects who might have taken part in the attack on the house of the finance minister's father. Earlier in the evening, security sources said that two of the house's guardsmen killed and were killed and two others wounded in addition to one civilian wounded when the car bomb exploded in downtown Fallujah. 
So are, are you starting to see a theme from any of this yet? Uh, Afghanistan descending into human trafficking and uh, prostitution, sex slavery, uh, Libya with the, the ongoing fighting that's killed uh, 600 people in the last few weeks in Bani Walid. We have Fallujah still just a place of utter chaos with uh, car bombings and, and assassinations and kidnappings continuing to go on there. And uh, and it just continues to, to ha- unfold in place after place that are touched by the wonderful saving grace of the imperial conquest forces of the NATO uh, allied members. They just uh, continue to spread that peace, love and democracy around the world in a way that's just oh so effective, as long as you never actually bother to look into what's happening in any of these places. Surprise, surprise, right? Well, again, unfortunately, it's just part of a much larger imperial agenda that is unfolding like a nightmare and that very few people are willing to talk about. But sometimes it does start to break through. And in fact, there it does, as I mentioned yesterday when we were talking to Eric Dreitzer, I, I think that there is something of a breakthrough happening with the drone issue. There are more people who are raising the drone issue. Bob Schieffer at least raised the question to Romney of whether he supports the drone strikes and, of course, let Romney get away with a just ridiculous answer about how, of course, we have to strike at those people who want to get us. So I'm all for this policy. And surprise, surprise, both sides of the two-headed Hydra monster that is the the, uh, duopolistic political system are in complete agreement over all of these uh, points of real contention. But some more on the drone issue coming from this uh, Boiling Frogs Post nightly news and editorial roundup. Hearing into CIA drones would dent U.S. ties. Ties between Britain, the U.S., and Pakistan could be jeopardized if a judge grants a request for a court inquiry into a possible role of U.K. spy agencies in aiding covert CIA drone strikes in Pakistan's northwest tribal region, a government lawyer told Britain's High Court on Thursday. James Eady, lawyer for Britain's Foreign Office, insisted that intelligence sharing between Britain and the U.S., already understrained by previous disclosures made in London courtrooms and links between Washington and Pakistan would all potentially be cast into doubt. Noor Khan, a 27-year-old whose father was killed by a drone strike in northwest Pakistan in March 2011, has asked Britain's high court to examine whether UK intelligence officials assisted the action and may be liable for prosecution. So this this idea that there might be some accountability coming for these drone strikes, which once again are not part of any declared war or military action, not even a kinetic military action as Libya was declared by the commander-in-chief, the dictator-in-chief last year, uh, the, the fact that there might be some repercussions for these completely illegal, totally unsanctioned uh, drone strikes is starting to be raised by in more and more places. And even just today, we have it reported that the UN Special Rapporteur for uh, Counterterrorism is reporting that the UN is going to look into the drone strikes and whether they do uh, actually cross the line into an international uh, war crime. So there is a lot of movement on this drone issue, and it, there there is at least the potential for people to seize on this. I mean, once again, it's the kind of issue that most people, when you actually put it to them in plain language, do get creeped out about this and are concerned about it, that there are flying robots in the sky being directed by people on the other side of the planet that are shooting missiles in, into uh, civilian places uh, all, all across Central Asia and in North Africa. 
with complete impunity. And basically they're saying anyone of a certain age who happens to be male and over 18 who's hit by one of these things must be an enemy combatant by definition. And they're fudging the civilian numbers that are being killed by them. It's just a ridiculous and despicable program all around. And there is some breakthrough coming. Um, uh, Luke Rudowski and We Are Change continue to get more and more coverage of their confrontation of Robert Gibbs over this uh, drone strikes and all of this. So we are breaking through the wall of misinformation. On that note, let's take another short break. We'll be back right after these messages. Once again, the phone lines are open, 1-800-313-9443. All right, friends, welcome back. Once again, this is Corbett Report Radio. We are here live on this Friday night going over some of the news and information that's available there at BoilingFrogsPost.com. Of course, the link to last night's news and editorial roundup will be in the show notes for tonight's episode so that you can find the link to all of those articles that we were just going through and many more besides, as well as all the information that's coming out, of course, on Boiling Frogs Post, including the latest post, an interview with Pepe Escobar that, once again, I haven't had the chance to listen to yet as it's still early morning for me here in Japan, but I will be doing so as soon as I get a chance. I always love to hear Pepe's insights. But uh, let's let's move on. Of course, not not only uh, the the podcasts and the videos coming out through Boiling Frogs Post, not only the nightly news and editorial roundups, and not only occasional articles by other writers such as Paul Craig Roberts, but of course the insights of Sabelle Edmonds herself. And uh, she does write articles for Boiling Frogs Post, and she does co-host the Boiling Frogs Post flagship podcast. And of course, for people who don't know Sibel Edmonds, uh, I guess the synopsis of who she is and what she's about can be found, for example, on the About Sibel Edmonds tab on the website of her memoir, Classified Woman, which is available at classifiedwoman.com. So just the overall overview of who she is. Sibel Edmonds is the editor of Boiling Frogs Post and founder director of the National Security Whistleblowers Coalition. She is a recipient of the 2006 Penn Newman's Own First Amendment Award. Miss Edmonds worked as a language specialist for the FBI, where she reported serious acts of security breaches and cover-ups, and for that she was retaliated against and ultimately fired. Court proceedings were blocked by the assertion of the state secret's privilege, and the U.S. Congress has been gagged and prevented from taking up or even discussing her case through retroactive classification issued by the Department of Justice. Ms. Edmonds has an MA in public policy from George Mason University and a BA in criminal justice and psychology from George Washington University. And so earlier this year, she finally released her memoirs, which she has been trying, had been trying to get approval from the official channels and to get clearance from the FBI so that she could publish it uh, legally. She was uh, going through that process. Supposedly, after 30 days, you're supposed to be able to submit that to the FBI Review Board, and they're supposed to give you a response. Either it has to be changed or it's okay to publish. She submitted hers, and she uh, ended up getting the runaround for as much as a year until finally she didn't even get the approval in the end. She just decided to publish on First Amendment grounds. Um, and she went ahead with it. So classified woman is there despite the best attempts of the government to try to keep it from you. So I hope that people will go and actually uh, purchase a copy. But let's uh, let's just read a little bit from this book, because once again, I don't think I can adequately just convey in a synopsis just how deeply troubling this story is, because even if you had even a shred of hope that there was there was something good about uh, law enforcement agencies like the FBI, that, yeah, it might be a, a corrupt 
institution, but at least some of the agents are good and they're working for the good. Well, that might be true, but the, the, the extent of the corruption that's going on in the FBI just cannot be fathomed until you start to hear about it from someone who was there on the inside in the Washington field office in the language specialist department. So let's read a little bit from Classified Woman, once again, available at classifiedwoman.com. And we'll start just to set the, the table for how Sibel got involved with the FBI from a part that's, that comes from the first chapter of the book. Um, and I'll just read from this. It says, quote, uh, sorry, I'll set this up. First, uh, they're, they're, her and her husband, um, uh, Matthew, are checking their voice messages, and they note that one of the voice messages happens to come from the FBI. Quote, someone from FBI headquarters had left his number, urging me to call him back as soon as possible. I wondered what this was about. The only connection I had with the FBI had to do with my application for a temporary part-time intern position I had sent them four years earlier in 1997. I was interested in their department that dealt with crimes against children, having worked as a trained and certified advocate for the Alexandria Juvenile Court, where I investigated and represented child abuse cases for over two years. I had sent them my application for an internship, summer or a part-time position, relevant to the degree that I was pursuing in criminal justice. After reviewing my application, someone at the Bureau evidently found my linguistic abilities of interest and asked me to take proficiency tests in those languages and in English. At first, I was put off by the prospect of working as a translator, but on second thought decided it could be a stepping stone to where I wanted to be until I completed my degrees. I went ahead and took the intense and excruciating proficiency tests in the summer of 97. Afterwards, they said that all language specialists, whether full-time or contract, were required to obtain top-secret clearance, since they would be dealing with sensitive and classified intelligence and documents. The process of background checks and issuance of TSC, top security clearance, could take anywhere from 9 to 15 months, I was told. They would then notify me and offer me options such as contract or full-time employment. Nine months passed. Then another nine. And another. In 2000, I called FBI headquarters to inquire about the status of position I had applied for nearly four years earlier. Toward the end of that year, I finally received a call from a woman from FBI headquarters who told me with much sincerity and apologies that in 1999, the Bureau had lost my entire information package and test results together with those of 150 other applicants. That package contained my bank account information, tax records, social security, and private medical and family-related information. What? I asked, incredulous. Do you realize what people can do with that information? She apologized again and said the Bureau would conduct expedited background investigations and have the position ready for me in a year. If you change your mind and decide to go ahead with it, she told me, the position will be ready and available for you. That was the last I'd heard from the FBI until then. All right, so that's at least uh, the start of the story and how the uh, FBI came to contact her in the wake of 9-11 to get her on board with the language uh, specialist department because they had a backlog of, of uh, material that needed to be translated, potentially relating to 9-11 and the, the suddenly emerging war on terror there in the wake of 9-11. So they got in touch with Sibel Edmonds and uh, long story short, she ended up accepting their offer to work in uh, the translation department and to help them with translating these documents. And you can go and, of course, it goes into detail about her first uh, weeks on the job and her first assignment and 
some of the bizarre and unsettling things she started to notice. But let's skip ahead in the uh, memoir to Chapter 3, where she starts talking about cover-ups and betrayals. And this is where the story starts to get, uh, well, pretty disturbing. So, picking it up from Chapter 3... Quote, I spent a lot of time on my permanent and ongoing counterintelligence projects under Dennis Sacker during my t- short tenure with the FBI. Despite some overlapping with terrorism-related intelligence involving Central Asian narcotics and money laundering, my first two months were spent mostly on counterterrorism investigations dealing with 9-11. Reams of documents and audio files sent to the FBI Washington field office by field agents nationwide had been intercepted prior to 9-11 evidence that was never processed or translated until the attack. Now, after the fact, these files were being checked and reviewed for any possible connection. Some dated back to the late 1990s. Certainly not every lead had been worth following up, but things were different now. Old evidence carried new weight. Having originally overlooked pertinent and alarming intelligence may or may not be understandable, yet the Bureau's response to such evidence after 9-11 was uh, and and remains reprehensible and inexcusable. The lengths to which the top tier went to ensure the cover-up of these cases to prevent exposure and any investigation at all is almost incredible. Many such cases were subsequently withheld from both the Independent Commission on 9-11 and its predecessor, the Joint Inquiry into 9-11 by the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. Other cases brought to the attention of these bodies by whistleblowers or anonymous employees were omitted from their final report or outright buried. The public hadn't a clue. One afternoon toward the end of October 2001, slightly over a month after I began working for the Bureau, Mike Figali stopped by my desk to hand me a box containing taped and a thin tapes and a thin file of paper documents. He said an agent from one of the Nevada field offices had sent them. The operation dated back to July and August 2001, and the contents initially had been translated by a language specialist in summary format. In light of the events of September 11th, on a hunch the agent decided to send it to us for review. He believed something had been overlooked or not translated correctly, and if true, he wanted to be informed immediately and have everything translated verbatim. The agent also included in the package information up in the package, information obtained post-9-11 up to October 1st, 2001. I'm sure everything was okay the first time around, Figali commented. Just go over these and see if anything significant was missed. With that, he dropped the file and the accompanying tapes on my desk and walked away. After a short lunch break, I switched gears. I put aside what I had been working on and started the new assignment. I decided to give a quick listen to the tapes and skim the package before typing to see if anything grabbed me. Later, I would go back and start over again, if necessary, the tedious slow translation. For the first few minutes, I was having a hard time staying focused. Boredom had set in. The target was in jail, talking to someone in a remote and underdeveloped border region of Pakistan and Iran. I knew from the accent and the dialect where they were from. They chatted about some real estate and bridge projects, all the requirements they had to meet and the schedule they had to maintain. The very short, less than three-sentence-long original translation basically said that the subjects discussed inconsequential matters and talked about some real estate development. I thought it more or less sufficient and accurate. Figali's observations seemed to be right so far. A few minutes passed before something made me sit up at once with the force of an electric jolt. I thought I had heard something that didn't fit, something that was out of place. I wasn't sure what it was, but I felt spooked. I rewound the tape, and this time listened carefully. Oh my god, there it was. 
the target was going to send the blueprints and building composites for the project. Those buildings had to be skyscrapers, a hundred floors or higher, to fit the specifications. I looked at the date, late July 2001. The region to which these blueprints, building composites, and bridge specifications were to be sent was as primitive as could be. They barely had mud huts. How could they be discussing the construction of skyscrapers in a nomadic village with huts? They specifically mentioned skyscrapers. Also, the blueprints and building composites were to be sent via human courier, not by mail, FedEx, or fax. Why would someone go to that much trouble to send some simple blueprints, buildings, and bridge plans and composites? Why was a trusted source to travel around the world to deliver it? I believe the agent's hunch was right on target. September 11th attacks and skyscrapers, blueprints and building composites of skyscrapers hand delivered to Iran, the date preceding the attacks by approximately two months. Now I was awake and alert. I decided to go over a little bit more before notifying Figali and the agent who'd sent the assignment. I fast forwarded the tape to the first recorded date after September 11th, 2001 to 11 a.m. September, 11, September 12th, 2001. I pushed the start button and went over it. Bingo. First, the target and recipient congratulated themselves for this precious, precious aid. Aid is a religious holiday in the Muslim world. I knew all the dates for aid that year. They were no, there were no religious holidays in September. These congratulations were given one day after the 9-11 attacks. Were they celebrating a successful operation? I jotted that down too. Within the same communication on September 12th, the target warned that using men would be dangerous, not wise, after this. The next round had to be women, young women between the age of 18 and 24. There also was a brief discussion of channels to obtain visas in return for money, most of them in the United Arab Emirates. Their network included people with connections and contacts in U.S. embassies there. I stopped everything. First, I went to Amin's station. Amin is her co-worker. He wasn't there, so I grabbed his Farsi dictionary and returned to my desk. Having little to no familiarity with construction lingo, I needed to track down the names of several minerals, metals, and other building materials to find their precise corollaries in English. I had to double-check the translations. Then I locked up the tape and the original file, grabbed my notepad with the important points jotted down in my indecipherable script, and headed, no, ran, to Figali's office. His door was half-closed. I, I lightly tapped. He was on the phone, but he asked me to come in. I sat in the side chair and waited for him to wrap up his conversation in Arabic. My heart was pounding and I loved that agent I loved that agent without ever meeting him or even knowing his name. The man had a good nose. He had smelled this one big time and he was right. Catching this could help us uncover much more on the attacks and those behind them. Fagali's voice brought me back to the present. How's it going? I came straight to the point and told him about the discovery. Without so much as a pause to catch my breath, I concluded, so we need to call this agent right away, let him know right now, call him on the secure phone and read him my notes. Here. I handed him my notes. Now I'll go back and start with the verbatim translation. It will take me at least a couple of days. Maybe we should have Amin or Sashar on it. They are stronger in Farsi language. Meanwhile, the agent will know that he's on the right track. Fugali paused. So the original translation didn't have this information? I shook my head. No, but I can see why. Without 9-11, I wouldn't have found it significant either. This may be one of those hindsight cases, I guess. Very well, go and start translating the whole thing. I'll call the agent myself and we'll have him call your extension.
I left his office and returned to my desk. I spent the rest of the day on that project, and I was almost halfway done. The agent didn't call. I devoted my time exclusively to the translation. One more day and it would be finished. I needed only two or three hours more. The agent still hadn't called. Fagoli was not in his office, so I couldn't ask him about it. On the third day, I arrived to find the file was gone, missing. I checked the second drawer for my tapes, and they were gone too. I turned on my computer and clicked on my blueprint translation document. Still there. I checked my voicemail. No messages from the agent. I walked over to Figali's office. Without entering from the door, I asked, What's up with the agent? He hasn't called me. Did you call him? Did you reassign the files to Sashar or Amin? The tapes and files are missing, so I assumed you reassigned the case to them. Figali beckoned me in. Close the door and have a seat. I shut the door. Why hasn't the agent called me? It's been almost a week. I sent the agent the tapes and the original documents. It went out two days ago. I was baffled. But we haven't translated it yet. Did you tell him about the discovery? What was his reaction? Who is going to take care of the translation? Does he still have the suspect in custody? He sat silently for what felt like too long. We sent him everything with a note stating that everything was checked reviewed thoroughly, and no discrepancy was found. Was he joking? He didn't appear to be. What in the world was going on? I couldn't find words to express my shock. Neither could I resort through the questions I so badly wanted to fire at him. I was only able to mumble, I don't understand. This is one of the most damning pre-attack evidences I've come across here. But why? How would you like it if the shoe was on the other foot? How would you like some translator coming after you, checking what you produced and questioning its accuracy? What if you missed something explosive, something that may have, only may have prevented thousands of deaths, and someone reported on you? You wouldn't have appreciated that kind of a backstabbing, Sibel, right? All right, we'll leave the uh, the we'll leave the story at that point. But uh, suffice it to say, it goes on in in excruciating detail from there. That goes to show a coordinated system of repressing information that would even begin to possibly uncover vital pieces of the clues about 9/11 and what was really going on there. It gets much much deeper than that. Once again, that is from Classified Woman, Sibylle Edmonds' memoir, available at classifiedwoman.com. All right, friends, welcome back. This is the final moments of tonight's edition of Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we've been going over some of the information that's available not only from BoilingFrogsPost.com, but also ClassifiedWoman.com, which is the webpage of Sabelle Edmonds' memoir, which, again, I could not recommend strongly enough. I did read that section to you about some of the strangeness that she began to encounter when she started trying to actually do her job in the translation department in the Washington field office, but I guarantee you that only gives you the slightest hint of a teaser of the types of things that she eventually started to encounter as the uh, complicity of many of the people in the positions of authority there in that Washington field office continued to try to block her investigations, stop her work, and eventually got her completely removed from uh, from the office altogether for daring to raise questions about the ways that they were basically covering up important information. And uh, since then, of course, as uh, as you may or may not know, 
Sibel has gone on to form the National Security uh, Whistleblowers Co- uh, Coalition and has started BoilingFrogsPost.com, continues to fight for truth and exposing information that the government doesn't want you to know about all sorts of issues, including what's happening, for example, in Afghanistan, the drug trade, the uh, secret nuclear spy ring that uh, that uh, Sibel started to uncover there in the right in the FBI and in surrounding agencies involving congressmen and others who were targets of FBI wiretaps, etc. Just an incredible story. And again, it has to be read to be believed. So I hope you will check that out at classifiedwoman.com. As I hope you will also check out boilingfrogspost.com. Once again, just going through some of the things that they have up right on the front page right now. Of course, not only the latest Boiling Frogs Post uh, uh, podcast with Pepe Escobar, also a new uh, editorial by Dr. Paul Craig Roberts. In America, there will never be a real debate. There's the uh, news and editorials from last night that we were just going over at the beginning of tonight's program. There's episode two of The Reality Principle with uh, uh, Eric Dreitzer, and that is on pipelines, politics, and people. Uh, there's another uh, nightly news and editorial from October 24th. There's Andrew Gavin Marshall's episode 42 of the Empire, Power, and People podcast talking about Obama's transnational corporate tyranny, a.k.a. the TPP, or the Trans-Pacific Partnership that we've talked about on this broadcast. Another nightly news and editorial roundup from October 23rd. My eye-opener report from earlier this week, PsyOps 101, an introduction to psychological operations that is the first part of what will be a multi-part series on the entire idea of PsyOps and how the uh, psychological warfare is functioning in our increasingly technocratic society. And another nightly news and editorial roundup from October 22nd. So once again, information coming out each and every day there at BoilingFrogsPost.com. I hope you will tune into it, and I hope you'll tune in for the broadcast next week. As I mentioned, lots of great guests lined up for next week, including Sibelle Edmonds herself. She will be appearing next week. Come hell or high water, next Tuesday we'll be having her on the program. So once again, I hope you will join us for that conversation as we go into more of the incredible nature of her story, her own personal experiences at the FBI, and what has happened since then, and of course, all the latest at BoilingFrogsPost.com. So until next week, that's it for this week's broadcasts uh, here at Corbett Report Radio. Thank you again for investing your mind time in healthy, independent alternative media. And I'm looking forward to talking to each and every one of you next week. So until then, thank you for listening and take care.